Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM, SAM and software licensing professionals. Hi and welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and today I'm pleased to welcome Nick from Scalable Software. Um, Nick, um, we've not really um, worked together in the past, so it's good to have a new face and a new name on the podcast. Uh, you're co-founder and senior VP of products at Scalable Software. Um, Scalable Software is someone we've worked with historically for a very long time at the ITAM Review, since the very outset, but um, I'm, I'm going to assume today that people don't know Scalable, just in case they don't, Nick. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to say hello and, and introduce yourself? Hi there. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk a bit. So, I before we dig into Scalable, um, could you tell us a bit about you? How did you and how did you find yourself working at Scalable Software? Um, I, I started my career many years ago as an assembly programmer, uh, which kind of ages me. Uh, and I, I guess I moved into Pascal and C and things like this, and kind of realised that I was developing code that you know was poorly spec'd out and didn't have very good requirements so i moved into product management uh, and from there i moved into uh, product companies software companies small companies that uh, developed and sold product and i found that was what floated my boat if you like um and uh back in 2008 uh four of us were with different skills like product management engineering marketing that kind of thing um uh, were sort of working in the similar in the same company, and we, we 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 struck across this idea, and an opportunity arose um, to start scalable. But really, with uh, what what triggered it was at that time, Apple began to have huge influence in the App Store, and the concept of a platform uh, and reusable apps was something that uh, we it certainly triggered our enthusiasm. And uh, we, we were wondering why you couldn't do the same for like Enterprise ITAM. You know, we'd all been working with products that were uh, on-premise on, on deployed and they were difficult to maintain and they had, you know, very slow updates and this kind of thing. We like the Apple way of doing things. And we, we, we were looking at, you know, the possibility and the, the feasibility of a product um, like that for Enterprise ITAM. Um, and we were, we, that's how we started. So what does that mean? I think didn't you start out with packaging and inventory and what is where where did you start out on that journey? Well, the idea was that um, uh, you know we 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 we've always had a background in um, uh, cost control through um, usage. So the idea of uh, monitoring usage and controlling IT costs rather than um, licensing. Uh, specifically was always something that uh, as a company we'd focused on was a group and the opportunity if you like because the technologies were coming together Apple had shown that you know a platform and apps was feasible so um, the the a number of things sort of uh, uh, came together back in 2008 uh, the ideas the opportunity and 
and uh, uh, the people. So we started this idea of a platform. We let our customers guide us to our first few apps, um, which were very much around usage metering and cost control, discovery, you know, all of the things that you have to do before you can control the cost of something. You know, you, you need to know what you've got and where it is and how it's configured, and then you can start to work out how it's used and then work out whether you really want to be paying for it. And those were our first few apps. But the vision was always to have an ITEM-based or an ITEM-focused platform uh, onto which we could develop and drop other apps as we needed them as opportunities arose and um, things have gone from there. We, we work with selective partners now who are, you know, are building and deploying other apps on our platform. So for people that are not familiar with Scalable, the company, maybe they've not come across you before, could you give a quick description about the company, maybe the number of customers or... Or, or where you're based or the size of the company? Yeah, sure. So we've uh, uh, based in, in two centres, Austin in Texas and, and uh, uh, London in the UK. We're about 60 people worldwide. We're not a, we're not a huge company. Um, we are, are, are traditionally an ideas and engineering company uh, in that we do a lot of work in terms of looking at the market, analyzing the market, analyzing opportunities and building solutions that the customers have told us are compelling. Um, we've traditionally uh, sold through partners um, and specialist um, uh, resellers, if you like, or suppliers. Um, so we haven't had to be a huge company with a massive sales force. And, you know, we do have direct sales for key large um, uh, accounts. Uh, but a lot of our work is through is through partners at the sales end. And you've been at Scalable for quite a while, so you've seen the evolution from uh, predominantly perpetual world to cloud. Um, what are you doing? What how is Scalable addressing that market? You've you know you've got um, moving to a cloud based, increasingly cloud based model. What what Scalable bringing to the table to help with that? Um, well, back in, sounds like ancient history, doesn't it? You know, back in 2010, um, we, we, we sat down pretty soon after we started the company. And uh, really, actually, it was an idea that was in our heads when we started it, which was that, you know, the days of on-prem deployment were numbered for, you know, all sorts of reasons. And in 2010, the, the technologies became available, not only for us to build um, uh, a, a hosted solution, um, but also to be able to host it. So things like AWS became mature enough um, that we could commercially offer uh, a product. And uh, it gave us the ability to control that product through APIs and this kind of thing. So back in 2010, we, we built uh, Asset Vision, and we designed Asset Vision from the ground up uh, with new technologies that allowed us to do dynamic code updates, you know, without restarting instances and this kind of thing. Um, and we hosted it in AWS because the APIs were mature enough, the security model was mature enough to enable us to offer a product um, that way. And also, uh, back then, we... Um, uh, we were able to use, you know, the, the facilities that AWS gave us to build what was a precursor of, you know, um, uh, hosted product automation. We, we have our own technology for 
um, deploying instances, for monitoring instances, for recovering them, for you know uh, uh, all of the things that you, you, you expect. Uh, you know, a, a, a mature, secure cloud-hosted offering to have. Um, so uh, it, it, a number of things came together to enable us to 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 you know start from scratch with a blank piece of paper and actually put together a, a SaaS product that was designed to run out of the cloud. You know. In all in all the aspects that people talk about, you know, security, flexibility, uh, all of these kinds of things. So, but whilst you were exploiting that technology, were the customers ready for it? Because um, you know, having having inventory and and management tools in the cloud, it, it was probably a new thing for them, wasn't it? And yeah, was I mean, that, was it, that a bit it, of a hurdle? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we didn't really, you know, we took us a, uh, two or three years to actually get the thing to maturity to the point where, you know, we could offer the functionality that people wanted um, or that would that they would find acceptable in, in a product doing this. And, uh, yeah, the answer is no. It wasn't universally accepted <laughs> in the early days. Um, you know, the, 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 nowadays we still find people and organisations who cannot accept a cloud-hosted uh, product like ours um, for various reasons. Uh, it, it tends to be very rare nowadays. It tends to be the kinds of organizations you might imagine, you know, very security aware, uh, very conservative with a small C probably in the, you know, the way they adopt and use technology, this kind of thing. Um, but back then, yeah, it, it, it was a, um, let's say it was a tricky thing, you know, but, but you would bump into customers you know, potential customers on a regular basis that, you know, had now had no uh, processes in place to assess, you know, and purchase cloud-based solutions. But um, over the years, that has gone away, you know. I, I, I think sometimes the a product being available as SaaS is sometimes better for the software company as much as the customer it's not just a beneficial delivery mechanism for the customer but it's actually better it's easier for the software developer to develop in a SaaS model um lower overhead more control over things where, where why did you choose to to build in aws in the first place why didn't you go down the traditional route um we we all had a long experience of building uh, software products, complex software products for enterprises, um, and you know, delivering them and then having to support them. Um, we were none of us satisfied with you know what is still a very prevalent model of you know on-prem solutions where you know manufacturers will do one update per year, um, and uh, you know maybe you'll get a patch or something in between. Um, we wanted to uh, effectively. Uh, become better, faster, and cheaper. Um, you know, a lot of what we were, were doing wasn't, you know, reinventing the wheel, um, but it was taking what people already, you know, needed functionality-wise. Uh, as I say, delivering it better, faster, and cheaper. So, you know, I talked about the fact we used, you know, new architecture and technologies became available. Um, we wanted to be able to deploy a product quickly, get rapid results. Again, a lot of the the on-prem technologies. Um, that we were looking at at the time uh, took weeks or months to deploy and get results from, which we didn't think was acceptable. And we also wanted to um, reduce those running costs or reduce those hosting costs. I mean, we, we, we obviously manage and host 
our customers' uh, solutions out of AWS for them, or their, their, their products out of AWS, but that's all we do. So we get the benefits of scale and cost reduction through that, whereas you know, a lot of on-prem premises or on-prem products on-premise products are looked after by in-house IT teams, you know, that are looking after many different types of product with different types of deployment models and this kind of thing. So that, you know, we, we can reduce the cost by doing that. Um, you know, in, in a SaaS-based environment, you know, we, we, we could break that long annual cycle. Um, and I'll, you know, I'm happy to talk about it now in a minute, but, uh, you know, from the, from the get-go, we, we adopted, uh, I hate the term DevOps, it's become a much banded thing, but this idea of, you know, having teams that are cross-functional uh, and can work at different points in that traditional kind of development, QI operations, support lifecycle um, was key to what we do. And, you know, we, we, we wanted to be able to, you know, no customer can consume a product, at, you know, in this continuous sort of delivery model of daily. But certainly, we wanted to be able to offer customers regular updates to their product. Um, that, that uh, enabled us to very quickly and incrementally improve the product, change the product, add functionality rather than that whole conversation of, well, you just missed this release. There'll be another one in a year. I'll see what I can do with the product manager for you. Um, the conversations we have, because, you know, we knew when we put the product together, we didn't know what customers wanted. We knew some of it, but we didn't know all of it. And we needed to be able to react quickly. So, you know, the technology is available in SaaS enable us to, or enabled us at the time, and we still do, to uh, take those ideas and very rapidly implement them and deploy them and get them back in customers' hands. And, uh, you know, it's made the product very sticky with our customers because of that. You mentioned the fact that you have a, um, a usage-based approach rather than licensing approach. And I think the benefit of that is doesn't matter what the maturity of is of the customer is you can still strip out lots of cost whereas if you take the licensing route you have to do you know you have to do a long protracted potentially true up process look at their processes refine things whereas if you just look at usage you can strip out waste regardless of what state they're in correct um you know our view has always been uh whether or not you know people's licenses supported this is kind of a mute point but our view has always been um, to pay for what you're using. Um, we've had customers in the past that renegotiated license agreements based on usage you know, from our products and this kind of thing. It depends on what kind of customer and how aggressive you are as a, a negotiator as to how far you get with that approach, I guess. But um, certainly, you know, being legally is, is, is you know, license-wise is obviously a key thing for people. You need this. Um, but also, you know, at the same time, not paying for what you're not using is as important to many organizations and making sure that you're size right, if you like, uh, and then making sure that you're, you, you, you're, you're licensed for what you're using and what you've deployed um, or what you've deployed and you're using um, and pulling off anything you're not using is key to this, you know, or our view of it all. So, um, yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, you know, our message, you know, certainly today and over the last few years um, is ringing more and more strongly with organizations who are you know, all looking to keep costs under control and, and make sure that their, you know, their, their expenses, their expenditure is it, it, strictly necessary. Nobody wants to be paying for something just for the hell of it. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly that, that usage-based approach is key. I, I mean, we started off on the desktop 
um, you know, in terms of things like Windows, Mac, Linux, Chrome OS, you know, monitoring and um, uh, letting people know about their usage of, you know, not just desktop software, but uh, web applications they paid for, they consumed through a browser and uh, things like Zenapp uh, and Citrix-based products uh, and how these are being used. Um, yeah, obviously there's, there's savings to be made when you can see that, you know, uh, I've got X copies or, you know, 200 X copies of a particular product out there and um, I'm only actually using, um, you know, the full license, a read-write license for 10% of them, the other 80% of just people who don't ever start it or if they do start it, they don't actually, all they ever do is read something, you know, a document comes and they open up a full-blown application, they read it, they scan it, they close it. Um, there's a huge amount of saving to be made on the desktop just by identifying and, uh, and applying a kind of use it or lose it approach there. Um, but, you know, that, that, that whole usage model le leads to other sort of cost control initiatives, things like warranty data, you know, being able to understand, um, you know, in a large environment, the warranties that you have on physical devices when they expire. Um, and perhaps making them all coterminous so that you can, you know, lower the cost per device on your warranty contracts when you renew this kind of thing. Um, there are spin-off benefits, um, things like location data overlaid on real estate. Um, you know, for example, the elimination of, of unused hot desks. Many organizations are moving to a hot desk model. They pay thousands a year to have a hot desk sitting there. Who knows how they're using it, but, you know, with a usage-based um, cost control, we can start to look at, you know, how many hot desks do you actually need in an organization? You know, you can take out what you don't. And then you lead into things like, you know, sort of usage patterns to determine whether um, cheap, quote, disposable things like Chromos devices versus a full laptop desktop are more applicable. You know, we see more and more enterprises with, uh, you know, a, a rack of Chromos devices and they will reset at night and people pick one up for the day, they sit down, they do their work through a browser or whatever. Um, if it breaks down, they put it back, get another one, carry on where they left off. Um, you know, so being able to identify the usage where you have users that are probably more applicable to that model of running rather than a, a full-blown Mac or Windows laptop or Surface or something, you know, with all the cost involved in that. It's another area that, you know, we, we, we're finding people are using us for. So how, how have you made the transition to cloud? What we, I understand the usage on the desktop and server environment, but in a, in a sort of on-premise world, how have you moved, what are you doing in, in, in terms of cloud, increasingly important for people? Well, it, it started from two, from two points. One is, um, uh, we, 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 you know, I've talked about usage on the desktop there. We also, um, uh, several years ago, moved into uh, usage in server estate, which is slightly different because, you know, obviously things don't have UIs in there and that kind of thing. But you've got some very expensive products in there that people will come in and audit. Um, and people are often surprised by the audit bills they get. And they don't, and, you know, they do understand once they've audited why they've got them, but, you know, there's no warning beforehand. So being able to um, agentlessly inventory these expensive products and actually come up with usage data that the manufacturers or the, the, the publishers use to audit people and giving people a view ahead of time of, you know, uh, how they're using these products and where they're potentially exposed um, was a big part of what we do. And um, we, we, we see many organizations migrating these, these services, you know, that they, they run in their data centers 
I've been to um, the cloud in Chrome, obviously. It's, um, uh, you know, be it AWS or Azure or, 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 or Google Cloud or wherever. Um, but we found that it, it becomes less an issue of licensing there and more one of cost control of, of things. And, you know, the, I, I talked about it came from two areas. And, and, and we are a very large, you know, user of AWS. You know, through us and our partners, um, we have thousands of customers uh, that we that we support out, out of AWS. And, you know, our needs for uh, control of cost in the cloud are very similar to most other organizations we've bumped into. You know, it, 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 Sam is moving from sort of locally installed software to tracking and manages services delivered to a browser. Um, Applications, if you like, are much are becoming as much about the infrastructure they run on um, as the license, because often you'll find that you know the license is included for an operating system, for example, and the cost of the rental of the device. Um, you know, applications can be deployed on servers uh, in the cloud. Again, key applications are often licensed by the cloud provider. Uh, if they're not, then you know you, you do have a licensing implication, and people obviously care about that. But uh, more and more, as you know, we've controlled our own costs in our own large AWS estate. We, we found the problems are similar for, for our customers, which is, you know, stopping this uncontrolled runaway of uh, virtual machines. Um, you know, the, the, and there are many, you know, people listening to this who um, have experience in the cloud will recognise and roll their eyes at the multitude of you know purchasing options that you have for cloud-based. Um, uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, you can pay for it by the hour, you can pay for it by the year, you've got options in terms of convertibility, uh, all of these things. Um, you know, you pay for vCPUs, you pay for more RAM, you pay for network usage, all of these costs add up and, and it's very complex and it's difficult to control. Um, and, you know, we, through our own model, um, recognize the need for cost control in the cloud um, through usage, um, and you know, we, we, we we're implementing this in our product, not just for ourselves, but for our customers as well. We've found we've got very similar similar issues, and it's not one of just understanding what have I got. You know, you know, we can cover that, and there's a number of you know tools out there that do it, and they'll tell you what you've deployed up there. Some of them will even go as far as to sort of look at how long things have been running, how you purchased them, trend lining, and that kind of thing, to tell you you know you should be looking at converting this to a different cost model or whatever it is. But our, our view is very much one of um, looking at usage, you know, in, in terms of uh, our own experiences. You know, we've got some very large um, databases and we've got some very large machines um, that we run. And, you know, you buy them by a number of vCPUs and RAM and network bandwidth and disk bandwidth and this kind of thing. But, you know, monitoring all of that and looking at it over a period of time and saying, this workload, whatever it may be, you know, that you're running on this machine here could, you know, over the last 90 days could quite easily be moved to a different and cheaper machine to run it on. And that's the kind of thing that, that, that you know, uh, control of those costs through looking at usage and workloads. And it's not just workloads, obviously, network bandwidth and everything else comes into it. But by pulling all that together, you can apply exactly the same ideas um, to, to, you know, managing your cloud and, and, and you know, having it through a single pane of glass where you can see your internal private things and how you're using them, your cloud um, and your and your desktop machines is all part of, you know, our philosophy. 
So what's so what's your position on this intelligence you're gathering from AWS? Are you reporting what people are using, or are you actually helping them move their workloads? Where's your where's your stance on that? So we uh, I mentioned earlier we have a, a rapid release cycle. So um, we are over the last few and the next few releases um, delivering more and more functionality around the idea of discovering what you have in the cloud, telling you what it's costing, analyzing those costs and giving you information on how you could be you know, buying the same assets more cheaply. And then finally, in, in, in a short term sort of vision, um, looking at workloads and starting to tell you how you could trim those costs in terms of you know, moving workloads to, to um, cheaper resource and run the same workload. Now, um, we, we would always deliver information to people, you know, clear reports that give advice on what you could do. But um, much, like, much with our use of machine learning um, in, normal, in our data normalization efforts, we would never allow you know, a machine of any sort to automatically go off and move a customer's workload. We would always deliver uh, information to a person. And our view is that you, know, you need somebody to sit there and look at it and say, no, that's there for a reason. You know, there might be a lot of commercial reasons why it's running on such a big machine, but we just advise. Okay, and you've mentioned about doing some exciting stuff around um, uh, machine learning or um, artificial intelligence. In fact, it would be good to explore those two buzzwords. So um, machine learning is, is a method that, of, of delivering artificial intelligence. Is that right? Is that the way to describe it? I guess that's, yeah, you see them interchange, but, you know. Um, machine I, I learning is a technique of yes, artificial intelligence. Good. Yeah, um, I mean, we, 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 we're using um, uh, machine learning algorithms in uh, our analysis of uh, data to be normalized at the moment. A big part of, of what organizations like us uh, deliver in terms of value to our customers is the normalization of very complex data into things that they tend to want to talk about. And, you know, I, the very simple you know, example is, um, you know, if, if you're just trying to find out how many copies of Word you're running, you know, when somebody talks about Word, they mean Word, you know, current licensed thing that we have running. Um, what they're not interested in is that they've got 47 different versions of Word 2016, you know, and something reporting all 27 versions to them. So, you know, being able to recognize all these 27 versions and, 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 and count them all up and say to somebody, here's all your word, um, it, 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 all your copies of word, and this is the count, um, is you know, a, a trivial example of normalization. But to do that, you, you, know, you traditionally have lots of people who sit there and look at all these different versions of word that have been discovered, and they're all called word 2016 or whatever, and version 12345 and 123410 and 123427 or whatever. Um, and you as a, you know, a human being know that they're all the same thing, they're all word. But um, you know, a lot of the normalization software that's out there, um, people have to add this stuff. Well, you know, it, it, it's perfectly feasible in cases like that to um, train a machine, if you like, um, to look at this data and to recognize um, that, you know, this, this is simply a repeating pattern and these are all work, the same version of Word or the same family of Word. 
um, and to and to normalize them that way. But we would never let that 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 uh, that machine, if you like, actually go and make those changes to our master database. Um, we would always have people sitting between the suggestions it's making. You know, I think this is Word, uh, and they would agree with it. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, click 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 click. That's all the same. Um, but the the we, you know, we, we always have this vision of, of, of an adult, if you like, at the helm, looking at it and going, nope, you're wrong there. And again, that no will go back into the system and, and the machine will learn from that. And its advice will be better next time because of it. So how is it, how I get, I mean, the, traditionally it's been a lookup database, isn't it? So if this long windy file is found, then what it means is this in a database and we'll normalize yeah. it against this standard name. So how is the how is the machine learning from your yes or no? How does it how does it add intelligence in that way? So um, we we uh, organisations like us, are, well, I say obviously, but organisations like us receive a lot of data. So you know when a customer's copy of Asset Vision, for example, our product is scanning their network, um, it will be. Um, you know, bringing back hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of discovered um, files, you know, signatures of files, um, and looking to present them to the customer in a normalized way. I, these are all, these things I found are all part of, I'll talk about Word because it's easy, but you know, it's a trivial example, all part of the family of Word processor, Microsoft Word. Um, but occasionally, uh, and it does this by, in, in our case, we have a, a, a central uh, service which uh, all of our customer copies talk to. And, you know, they simply say, I, I found this. Can you tell me what it is? Um, and most of the time, this central normalization service will, will, you know, look in its database and say, yep, that's all part of the family of Word. There you go. Occasionally, uh, we will get something where the service goes, I don't know, no idea, never seen that before. Um, I've got no record of it. And that's the kind of data that um, gets, would, would be fed off. And then, you know, we, we're on a, uh, not a learning curve, what's the right word here? We're on a, uh, a journey of discovery about where machine learning can help and where it's of no use. Um, it's not universally applicable. Um, but this kind of data, this misdata as we call it, it's the data that we, 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 uh, we can feed um, to our technology, and you know, in, a, in the great majority of cases, it can correctly associate things. Um, you know, with, with, with uh, the correct publisher, with the correct you know software family, this kind of thing. Um, but we don't allow that 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 technology to make the changes. You know, back in the database, that would that would happen through a person to vet them. Now, um, I haven't really answered your question. I've, I've realised, but in terms of how it learns. It learns more from the, uh, you know, we don't just say, you know, you're wrong, that's a miss, you, you guess wrongly. But uh, we would also then normalize that manually, whatever it may be, in, in the old sense, um, and feed that result back into, you know, our technology, which would then learn from that and say, ah, okay, I understand. You know, and it starts to build a, a, a richer picture. Now, where this can't help is if, you know, if I went off and started a company tomorrow and I, you know, thought up a new publisher name and you wrote a new piece of software and, you know, it was in a new category, 
and I started selling it and one of our customers bought it and it was discovered and the data came up to uh, you know a normalization service you know no no AI in the world is going to be able to work out what that is at the moment you still need somebody to say well we've never seen that before let's go and google that publisher let's find out their website let's work out what that thing is that they've done but once we've done that we've got you know it becomes more training data and if that publisher or whoever starts to put out more software, um, then you know the technology gets better and is able to do more and more for us. Certainly, in the way of you know breaking that um, very time-consuming work of doing all this this work of lookup and association. I remember watching the documentary. Um, I think it was is it Google Mind, um, and they they basically t- taught it the instructions for how to play the the. Um, it's like a checkers game of Go, and they basically it learned through failure. So it kept on losing and losing and losing. It, it gradually got it got to a master level, and then eventually beat the top master because it kept on learning. They didn't teach it anything. It, you know, they just said gave they gave it the basic rules of the game, and it kept on learning techniques and became a super master. And just imagine if that to the extreme was applied to licensing to say keep on you know tap into somebody's inventory their cloud platforms look at their license records and keep on trying to do a reconciliation and we'll keep on correcting you and you get more 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 powerful um be incredibly incredibly useful for people to spot risk i i i completely agree it's something that we've talked about i mean the old jokes about what if it turns into skynet are you know, <laughs> if you've ever seen the Terminator movies, um, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's something that uh, I think many people are limited by their imagination in terms of what this stuff could do. Uh, eventually, I mean, we, we we are we're using it to solve you know very laborious you know manual processes that take a lot of time and people, uh, and to help speed that process up. But uh, yeah, I mean you know everybody that's started to think about it in, in the context of this has, has thought about the idea of um you know could, how far could this go how where could you use it but again you'd need someone there at the helm in my view or in yeah. our view probably wouldn't be here's your risk or here's your license compliance statement it's more a case of of all the other networks we've looked at and all the other scenarios the computer says that these are your top five things to look at based on previous history. And it, mm-hmm. it's similar to your AWS example. It won't be a case of, oh, let's do that for you. It'll be a case of let's feed that intelligence to a human being to make a management decision about what to do next. Yeah, it's. It, I completely agree. I mean, we, we, we've talked internally. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, we've touched on various bits and pieces that we do, and there's a lot more to it than that. You know, we talked about the server estate and, you know, a big piece of this is that many people's internal server estate is, you know, virtual. They all run VMware, they run Hyper-V, they're moving VMs all over the place. You know, from a, a, a licensing perspective, that that's important. They need core counts. They need to know how long a VM has been running on a particular machine with a particular processor and all this kind of thing. Um, and, you know, we, we've been looking at, uh, you know, the use of sort of AI, if you like, um, to help with um, the concept of recognizing a service. So um, one of the, 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 the big kind of uh, benefits from 
you know, taking a cost view of things is you can look at a service. And, you know, many, many large organizations have these great big VM farms where, you know, you can point at a given VM and, and you'll, you'll struggle sometimes to find anybody that knows why it's there, why it's running, how long it's running, and if anybody's using it. But, um, you know, we, we have an agentless method um, of being able to look at running services on the VM, look at the connections that are coming in from other machines over time, um, and following those, those connections uh, manually at the moment, you know, back to another machine, identifying the service that's actually connecting. So you find, find you've got a database server running on a VM, you know, and then every now and then something comes in from another machine and you go over there and it's Apache. You know, and then you follow it, the links back up, and you find out that once every three weeks, Fred logs in from somewhere, does some great big calculation, and then logs out again. You know, um, and you know, having uh, that knowledge means that you can't turn this thing off. But you know, anybody just looking at it, the, the, the database is costing money and never being used. Um, but again, having some technology that could learn from this and actually learn what these links and associations meant, and automatically recognise the service with people and tell them about it. Is again something we we looked at rather than have people have to follow them all and that kind of thing. Um, so there's opportunities all over this. Um, I remember you know, working a, working in a, on site in London once, and they they had a similar thing to say. Well, we've got this database on this server. Don't don't really know what it is. Asked around, couldn't find out who owned it. And um, you know, it's the old adage in IT that you know you switch it off and wait for the screaming. And they they did that. And it turned out it was a little access database that was owned by the lady who looked after all the billing for the contractors and none of the contractors get paid because they turned off her access database. So that was an incredibly popular move. But a little tiny bit of intelligence and you can make a lot smarter decisions about actually this is this quite critical yeah. and, and this is what it's connecting to. Yeah, and we're just trying to supply the information so people can make sensible decisions around cost. You know, it's like licensing. I mean, we, we're not dot the i's and cross the t's you know supplying herds of consultants full-blown licensing organization um but most of our customers want to gain a decent view of their situation you know do i need these herds of consultants you know it's really how good or bad is it am i close enough or am i miles away you know we've developed a, a, a license calculation engine which assesses you know what you've got deployed and used against what you're entitled to use to give you that 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 uh I don't like the word rule of thumb, but it, it, you know, it, it, we're a software company that's trying to help customers. We're not a consultancy supplying, you know, herds of consultants to do this work. So, you know, again, in terms of um, the data we're supplying and, and where AI, you know, machine learning could be could be uh, applied, um, we, we're fairly pragmatic. You know, we, we, where it can help, we can use it. Where it doesn't help, you know, we won't. Great. Well, it's been fascinating to talk to you, Nick. Thank you very much for joining the podcast. Um, we'll look out for your version of Skynet taking over the world soon. Um, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll point the finger at you. No, I, I, I think it's I think it's got a lot of um, a lot of potential and um, taking out you know identify a lot of risk and help people a lot in terms of running their infrastructure. So good luck with it, and we look forward to to tracking you and, and see how things develop. Also, thank you for joining us at our conference in Australia. So if anyone wants to meet Scalable Software and talk further about what they do, then come and see them at our conference in Sydney in end of, end of November. Thanks for the opportunity.